This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club, the late autumn edition. I'm Megan O'Rourke, your host and a culture critic for Slate. And joining me today are book club regulars Katie Royfe, a professor at NYU and author of Uncommon Arrangements, among other books, and Troy Patterson, Slate's eminent TV critic. Welcome to both of you. Uh, eminent is a very nice thing to say. <laughs> so welcome to you. Um, we are going to jump into our, our book club in a moment, but first we are going to have a word from our sponsors. We're going to have a commercial message. Yes. And that sponsor is audible.com. Uh, which offers more than 50,000 audiobooks for download right to the very same device on which you're listening to me right now. Uh, if you sign up for a new one-book-a-month membership through our URL, two things are going to happen. Uh, for one thing, you'll get a free audiobook, yours to keep whether or not you keep your membership. Uh, and for another, it counts as a vote of support for this podcast. Uh, that URL, once again, is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. Uh, and I don't know if there's any Raymond Carver on there, but um, maybe there should be. There should be. We will hope there will be. And we also hope that you do go visit and cast your vote for our podcast. Today, we are doing something a little bit different than usual. We are talking about Raymond Carver, but we're actually going to compare two versions of a short story by Carver. Uh, as some of our listeners may know already, Carver, um, in, during his career, had a very, what turned out to be a controversial relationship with his editor, Gordon Lish, who was first his editor at Esquire magazine and later his book editor. Basically, after Carver's death, increasing evidence and kind of manuscripts were published to show that Lish had heavily, heavily edited Carver's manuscripts to the point that, you know, the, Carver's kind of infamous minimalism, the minimalism that, that really he became known for in the 1970s, was was very much the product of Lish's editing and Lish's cutting in particular. So we're going to be talking about two versions of this Carver story, uh, The Bath and A Small Good Thing. A Small Good Thing is actually Carver's original version, but it wasn't made public until many years later in a volume called Beginners, which has just been reprinted in a Library of America compendium of Carver stories. It was originally published as a short story called The Bath, heavily edited by Gordon Lish in the book What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. So if you if you buy the Library of America version book, in other words, you'll see two two versions of the same book. One is Carver's original version called Beginners, and the other is the kind of Lish version that appeared called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. And it's really interesting, and if you're at all interested in this, you might want to go through and look at the different stories, but we're going to just focus on this one story. So I guess I just wanted to start by asking both of you, did did you prefer a version of these stories? And if so, which one, Katie or Troy? Troy. Um, I did. My uh-huh. favorite is of the three versions is Bath, mm-hmm. which is about maybe a third shorter than A Small Good Thing mm-hmm. um, and I find more interesting because it's cleaner and terser mm-hmm. and 
sort of ends more ambiguously, mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot more plausible. And in the, there's also some bad dialogue in the uh, long version thing. of mm -hmm. a small mm -hmm. big thing. Mm -hmm. um, and just to refresh everyone's memory, if you don't have your carver in front of you, the general idea is that a uh, mother orders a cake for her son's birthday party um, on a Monday morning. The son gets hit by a car uh, while he's walking to school. He manages to walk home, and then he sort of slips away. Uh, the mother and the child go to the hospital. The father joins them later. The son's not very responsive. The doctor isn't at first willing to call it a coma. And meanwhile, as these people make their sort of reluctant trips home to take a shower, have a bath or whatever, the baker is calling the house because there's this cake there that hasn't been picked up, and it's, right. you know, 16 bucks or whatever. Right. Um, and things move on from there. And what's, what's kind of shocking is that, I mean, I also preferred The Bath as a short story. I thought it was a better story as fiction. The shocking thing, though, is that the stories have totally different values. That, that A Small Good Thing, as you can tell by the title, ends on this moment of uplift where the baker serves rolls to the parents and kind of comforts them. And the... The, well, I don't even know which to call the original one. The Bath, um, the, the edited right, version, right. Uh, ends in incredible bleakness with this sort of ominous, as Troy said, ambiguous ending. And it's haunting, but it doesn't. he takes out the kind of, I mean, it's not a happy ending, but it's a happy-ish ending. Hmm. And so what's interesting or, or sort of sinister, depending on how you look at it, about this edit is that he totally changes the sort of value of the story, not just... The editing, you know, which I agree with Troy. I mean, I think one is clearly a better short story as a short story. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's really important, um, Katie, what you mentioned, because there's there's two kinds of editing going on in, in this in the Lish version. One is the editing that, that many, and I was a fiction editor once at The New Yorker, this kind of editing that happens routinely where you're pulling out just a little bit of extraneous dialogue, you're pulling out some description, you're making the story leaner, move more quickly. And then on top of that, which which can, which does certainly affect the style and change things about the way the story feels to read. But on top of that, there is this other kind of editing that Lish is doing, which is really wholesale cutting. Um, as you mentioned, Troy, the story ends on a more ambiguous note. I think we can go ahead and say that in the bath, we never find out whether the son lives or dies. We presume that he's going to die, but we're not told. Um, that's left as a suggestive element of the story. And in A Small Good Thing, the son dies. We find out that the son dies. There's, in fact, there's, there's a whole long conversation between husband and wife afterward. Um, a Small Good Thing, and then the, the husband and wife go to visit the baker who's been ominously calling. And they uh, have this interaction with him, which, as Katie says, it sort of ends on a slightly... I think it's not uplifting, but it's optimistic. There's this idea that in the midst of this, there is a small good thing, which is mm -hmm. the food that the baker, the title of that story comes from the food that the baker offers them. He said eating is a small good thing in a time like this, or I'm paraphrasing. But it's also, I think, we're meant to think the kind of rest or the kind of recuperation of a relationship between the baker and the, right. and the parents. So uh, the way I think about it is that the bath is more story about dread and mm -hmm. a small good thing is about sort of grief first and then kind of a tentative beginning of a healing mm -hmm. second. And I think it's also about a marriage. That's a great summary. I think it's also about a marriage. Would you agree with that? It, there's a little bit more about their marriage. 
Yeah. Through yeah. the lens of grief, you're right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think in the... Again, this is all very confusing. I'm not sure which one I read when. <laughs> um, but I believe that there's, there's maybe a little bit more tension between the husband and wife in A Small Good Thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's definitely. Still, I mean, the interesting thing about these stories is there's more of everything in The Small Good Thing. So right. there's basically more elaboration of every single character and every single thing that happens. He adds several sentences. And so the editing process is stripping it down to the elements. So it's mm-hmm. really bare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you don't get much character and the characters become generic. And that what's terrifying about the bath and the generic characters is that it really is a story about death in a way. You know, you feel this kind of archetypal experience or this moment that could happen to anybody in a different way, whereas the other story is just specific. It's about some characters and they have names and often Lish takes out people's names and he calls him the birthday boy, whereas in the other one they give him, you know, his name and they name the dog and, you know, just it, it becomes a story about characters, which is you know, one of the, either the genius or the, as I say, the sinister element of this editing process. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to. That's a bit strange. Well, well, we'll, we'll get to we'll, that. We're going to talk about that we'll later. That in, we'll get to that in a little bit. But, but I do think, I mean, let me stand up. I want to stand up for a small good thing. I'll play devil's advocate for a small okay. good thing for a moment. Um, actually, in 1998, after uh, there was a, article in the Times Magazine about the editing process. Judith Shulovitz in Slate, we should mention, published an article about the two and said which said, asked readers to weigh in on which version they preferred. Um, she preferred the bath like you guys. And definitely, you know, the bath is a much cleaner, tighter story. Um, and you can go through and compare sentence by sentence, and you just see a lot of Lish's edits are just like really straightforward, small edits that just make the story better. And I think you put it so clearly, Katie, about the you know what is what the story does how it becomes archetypal but there is something really one of the things that Lish said about his editing of Carver and that critics have said is that he he was always watching out for the sentimentality in Carver's work and that's there clearly in a small good thing i mean that the ending goes a little gets a little bit um not syrupy, mawkish. but it okay, mawkish it gets that it starts to get there. And you said it was not quite plausible. On the other hand, I have to say, as I was reading the, the, these two stories in particular, and then also comparing different versions of Lish's and Carver's, there is a way in which there's something sentimental about the Lish versions too, and it's a sentimentality about suggestiveness. I think it's there's a kind of unwillingness to let anything be specific in the way that Katie was talking about, and that's just. I think interesting to contemplate, and I kind of wanted I kind of wanted there to be a third version of beginners, where like you know I was going through and doing the kind of line editing I would have done as an editor on the Carver versions without pulling out, and because a lot of there's just a lot of extra like he overwrites, and it's sort of surprising to me that he didn't go back through and do that himself, like kind of create his own third version of these stories. Um, You know, that is the surprise of it because there's a lot of bad over like once you see the cut some of the cuts you think well of course you would keep that cut but i also think part of what you're right about i mean i don't even think with the carver version that and i had mixed feelings about both versions Mm -hmm. i what i didn't what i thought about the Carver version is you wouldn't necessarily say it's sentimental and especially in all the stories because they're so dark so there's such a bleak sensibility at work that i don't think you can call them sentimental we're only calling them sentimental against a backdrop of such extreme bleakness that allows no glimmer of emotion right or or sort of hope at the end and i mean in in the end we're talking about that just a glimmer because he doesn't really put in sentimental 
I don't think you could call these sentimental stories. Maybe we in, could say wishful. You know, There's a kind of a strongly wishful element in a lot of the Carver and stories. And I actually think some of that's yeah. a little bit interesting in contrast. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little deeper than just mm-hmm. the relentless, dirty realism or whatever you well, want to call that's it. that's why I wanted to bring up this question about what's sentimental about the Lish versions, which is something we don't... Because Lish and Lish does kind of pull so much back and there's this pared down quality it seems like the opposite of what we think of sentimentality as being right which is kind of like an over lavishing of emotion and sentimentality might be a little bit of a misdirection of a word here because it might not be exactly the right word but I do think there's something that Lish is let's say kind of like infatuated with the brutality of suggestiveness and that's its own which often makes the stories um, much stronger and leaner but I think in a story like um tell the women we're going or uh, what's the stories I'm terrible with titles especially these titles there's a story that's in both beginners and what we talk about when we talk about love that's called uh, what's it about it's about the two friends who go out on a drive and see these girls and the one friend ends up killing one of the girls. And in the Lish version, it's completely inscrutable why he's done it. There's no sense of what's led to it, why it's happened. In the Carver version, there's this kind of, there's a sense something goes wrong. Like he try, he sort of, you know, basically wants to have sex with the girl. It kind of goes wrong. He basically rapes her, and then he just freaks out and kills. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's like one little accident leads to another, basically. All with, it's all bad will, but bad will kind of gone to the extreme. Anyway, just, we should stay on these two stories for a moment. But, you know, so let's actually look at the beginning of the two stories. Not the very beginning, but the description of the accident that happens right at the at the start. Katie, would you read the, the Lish version? So this is the cut Monday down. morning, the boy was walking to school. He was in the company of another boy. The two boys passing a bag of potato chips back and forth between them. The birthday boy was trying to trick the other boy into telling what he was going to give in the way of a present. At an intersection without looking, the birthday boy stepped off the curb and was promptly knocked down by a car. He fell on his side, his head in the gutter, his legs in the road, moving as if he were climbing a wall. The other boy stood holding the potato chips. He was wondering if he should finish the rest or continue on to school. The birthday boy did not cry, but neither did he wish to talk anymore. He would not answer when the other boy asked what it felt like to be hit by a car. The birthday boy got up and turned back for home, at which time the other boy waved goodbye and headed off for school. That's great. Troy, would you read the version? Yeah, I'm looking at the the first version. Of a small good thing. Yeah, to keep... To confuse the reader, reader further, there's a second version of <laughs> yes. Small Good Thing in this yes. book. Yeah. Uh, from yeah. the beginner section. Yes. We haven't talked about that yet, but we will. But we're looking at the beginner's version of a Small Good Thing. Yeah, we're looking at the beginner's so, one. We're... Okay. <laughs> On page, uh, I want to say it's 802. 804. 804, yeah. Uh, I must say that the Library of America, the, the book ribbon that comes in, is very, is very handy here. Handy. Especially because the paper is so thin and it's hard to... Yeah. Yes. On Monday afternoon, Scotty was walking home from school with a friend. They were passing a bag of potato chips back and forth, and Scotty was trying to find out what his friend was giving him for his birthday that afternoon. Without looking, he stepped off the curb at an intersection and was immediately knocked down by a car. He fell on his side with his head in the gutter and his legs out in the road. His eyes were closed, but his legs began to move back and forth as if he were trying to climb over something. His friend dropped the potato chips and started to cry. The car had gone a hundred feet or so and stopped in the middle of the road. A man in the driver's seat looked back over his shoulder. He waited until the boy got unsteadily to his feet. They, uh, 
There's a typo. Should be though. Yes. Uh, they boy wobbled a little. Uh, he looked dazed, but okay. The driver put the car into gear and drove away. So what's different about these two versions? If we can elaborate on them a little bit. Well, one, I think the naming of the boy, the here naming. he's Scotty versus the boy, the birthday just boy. sets a very yeah. different tone. Yeah. Where in the Same boy, we're that. really talking about, it's very weighted, and we're talking about, it could be any boy. I mean, it's really right. aggressively reaching out into the rest of the world to create this sort of generic boy that could be any boy. And also the birthday boy, right? Yeah, the poignancy of that, like it is every birthday boy... Yeah, every boy can be a birthday boy. And bo- right? poignant right. yet ominous. ominous. Already, you totally. know something bad is going right. to happen. It becomes right. very like laden with yeah. you know events to come, even just by calling him the boy. And then also all the detail of the other driver. By taking out all the detail and stripping it down, he creates a whole different tone, mm-hmm. where it's almost the the uh, author is so aggressively neutral in not caring about it, and especially taking out that line, "The other boy cried." Yeah. Right. The, the, well, yeah. the authorial tone becomes aggressively neutral. And I think in that aggressive neutrality is a very different attitude toward this event. That's well said. But I would say that what, although it's, there's less detail in the narrative sense, there's more detail of the, uh, in terms of word choice that I think makes the, the passage a lot more pungent and memorable. So to compare, uh, in the bath, it's that um, the birthday boy was trying to trick the other boy into telling him what he was going to give him in the way of a present. And in A Small Good Thing, it's uh, Scotty was trying to find out what his friend was giving him for his birthday that afternoon. Yeah, and um, in the way of a present is such a great phrase. Yeah, yeah. Great phrase. but yeah. The, the trick is, the trick is, is a lot more specific. fun. And then a second instance right here. At an intersection, without looking, the birthday boy stepped off the curb and was promptly knocked down by a car. He fell on his side, his head in the gutter, his legs in the road, moving as if he were climbing a wall. Um, where, in a small good thing, it's... Uh, let's see. Giving him for his birthday that afternoon. Without looking, he stepped off the curb at an intersection and was immediately knocked down by a car. He fell on his side with his head in the gutter and his legs out in the road. His eyes were closed, but his legs began to move back and forth as if he were trying to climb over something. And the the climb over a wall is um, an addition. The whole thing Climbing is compressed, yeah. but then the wall instead of something is well, that's something. It's crucial. No, I mean it's it's one of those. I noticed that right away, and it was because I read the bath, the Lish version first, and that that moment of of des- of describing the accident is so creepy and intense, mm-hmm. and it has all the hallmarks of really really excellent fiction writing of just being able to kind of compress. And create feeling in that that climbing a wall as if you were climbing a wall is so evocative because there's something about trying to kind of escape this fate. The wall becomes kind of emblematic of fate, and so I was waiting for that moment in the cover story, and it's not there. And, that, and there are a lot of lines like that um, where there's a line you really remember from a Lish version that's not there well, in and the, the cover story, which is so, which is interesting. I mean, and it's interesting that the whole tone is different yeah. because. The dead flat tone of the bath, the Lish version, is just absent in this version, where he actually has a totally different tone, I think. See, I would Every call now it and then flat. he has. I would call it deadpan, but not mm. flat, really? I think it's pretty flat. Like, it's. There's a, yeah. there's a sort of, like, uh, the bare reported fact. Here's the bare reported I, fact. I, I, I'm not giving it 
it, there's something like, and it's it's obviously deliberate. Here we're saying something really shocking in a really simple way with no elaboration. Yeah. Like, then he died, period. You know, it's very bare. One of the reasons I think, I did think it was flat, and I do think Lish's version's it's actually the thing that he does that... It's I'm not saying his, flat is a negative. I just mean, okay. I'm just yeah. observing. Like but I desert think it flat. can like, sometimes become a negative. This is something I was thinking a lot about, and I didn't have language for it, but I think it has to do with flatness. And there is a way in which maybe sometimes that becomes a negative. Or for me, that, that sometimes became a negative. And, and one example, and this isn't quite a negative, but in these two stories is there's a moment in the bath where, um, in both stories, where the mother is at the hospital and she goes and she's looking out the door, out the window. And I'm just going to have to, what page is the bath on? I lost my, I need two ribbons, not the one here. Um, uh, 251. She, uh, she's looking She's wanting to get away, and in the bath, it says the only thing we get is that she's looking at the the mother went to the window and looked out at the parking lot. Cars with their lights on were driving in and out. She stood at the window with her hands on the sill. She was talking to herself like this We're into something now, something hard. She was afraid. She saw a car stop and a woman in a long coat get into it. She may believe she was that woman. She may believe she was driving away from here to someplace else. And it's very striking because I was reading it and I thought that's very, I used the word kind of like aggressively neutral before. And this, that's certainly an aggressive gesture that it's not just to someplace else. It's not to the past. It's, it, it's not to some specific place else. It's to any place else. It's not to the past. It's just a way. Whereas what you think a mother would be thinking in that moment would be just, I want some right. place where everything is going to be okay, which isn't said here. Now, in the Carver version, that someplace else is someplace where Scotty would be waving to her as she gets home. And it's a really telling difference. And that's where the flat, the, I think that word flat starts to come in because there's there's a kind of like, we don't know what she's wishing for. We don't even know if she's wishing where Scotty would be or just that she would never have had the child. There's there's this distance. She was in just the somewhere version. else. Yeah. There you know? is. But That's what I mean by aggressive neutrality. Also, yeah, sort of like blank. Yeah. It's blank. Like there's just a fl- like there's like a flatness of affect. I guess is a way of putting it. Maybe and it doesn't. Maybe we don't need right. to think about it as being but negative I've, or not. But I, I feel like there's a way that that's appropriate to the occasion. Yeah. Well, that's um, what I was trying to think well, about. You know what? To compare this different. story it's to different. something is um, remember that Lori Moore piece that I think was not fiction about the child who's hospitalized. Yes. Um, Called, I cannot, so I cannot remember, remember the name. Going, but anyway, yeah, it was in the New Yorker. It was in the New Yorker, and it was it was a similar subject. It was published and as fiction, but it had a picture of her and the child. I think right, and it, it. It, yeah. some right. sort of true yeah. story. But yeah. it, the, but the tone of it was somewhere in between these two. I mean, it's just interesting when you were talking about a third edit. Mm-hmm. The tone was somewhere in between because she did have, as you say, reflecting this kind of stunned experience mm-hmm. of the hospital in the prose. So it had this flatness, and she has a certain flatness, but it also somehow incorporated this other more human element. Or maybe, you know, it, it somehow it it didn't deny any entrance into the story. And I just think, you know, sometimes in the bath you do think you want more. Mm-hmm. Like you actually do mm-hmm. want more. Well, you want to know more I, or you right. want a little more information. And here's where I would defend a small good thing, although in general I feel as you two do, I mean, there's the prose is kind of so much more limpid and extreme. And, and though I've used the word flat and sort of tried to say maybe it's negative, there's something extremely um, intense about that and memorable, kind of in the way that like a Kafka story is memorable. But my, the only thing that Lish does sometimes, and it verges on it in this story, and I think in the in the story I was mentioning before, tell tell the women you're going, we're going, it's really there. Is that 
this is what I mean about the sentimentality of suggestiveness. Suddenly, I think the baker's character in the bath becomes really melodramatic. It's almost more implausible really? feeling to I me. I feel precisely the opposite. Because so because we never because it's never resolved. It's just like the baker freaks out, and you're like, why is the baker behaving like this? Like, why does the baker have to become like the evil clown of the party? Like, I feel like the baker is entered from like a David Lynch movie almost. You know, like I know he becomes kind of like the symbol, and you can understand why he hasn't been paid, and you speculate on all that. But like about like why would he keep calling and harassing them? But when when the mother is like, you bastard! Like, wouldn't he? Kept, the literalist of me kept being like, wouldn't the baker just intuit? That something went wrong. Is he really this nasty a person? But you're, that's you're talking about the small good. Thing. No, I'm talking about the bath. No, and I mean, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A small good thing is the. I'm looking at this. No, and in, in the bath, we don't ever find out why he's behaving this way. Whereas in a small good thing, we get the scene where finally they go and confront the baker, and right. we understand that he's been kind of embittered by his right. experience. But also in the small good thing, his. Uh, agitation is a lot more florid. It is more florid. That's why I want the third. That's why I want the other. Because in, in the bath, it's a lot more plausible as a, as a misunderstanding. Whereas in a small good thing, it's like the, yeah. the baker's already kind of unhinged, unhinged or something. a little bit. Yeah, but I don't know. There is something just a little bit extreme about the baker's role, like what the the role the baker ends up playing in the bath. Hmm. I don't know. That was how I just felt that that, that absence becomes so freighted. Um, well, as, I mean, as you say, <clears throat> this is what I mean, like the symbolism, this yes. sort of unbelievable, it's, it is almost heavy handed in a way yeah. because it becomes more melodramatic in a certain way when it's just these shadowy figures that stand in for various parts of life in, right. the, in the Lish version. And it's interesting because I noticed in our conversation... Like you just said, Megan, you were like, and Lish's version says, oh, like, yes. well, it was liter- you know, which I think is right. interesting because it is that extreme and it does yeah. feel like Lish has that much control that you actually would call it his version. But when you think about it, these are both just technically Carver's versions well, with an editor. So I think we yes. should talk about, Let's talk about that a the role bit. of the editor because it is, it is pretty unusual, I think, to have an editor this yeah. Active, should we say? Well, let's let's talk about that. So, so when um, these manuscripts came to light, and um, there was a lot of controversy about precisely this issue that you're mentioning, Katie, because DT Max published an article in the New York Times Magazine in 1998 comparing different versions of the stories, showing how heavily Lish had edited this, the, the versions of, of Carver's stories, the original versions, and um, quoting Lish talking about having being responsible for these stories, being responsible for Carver. And at one point, Lish goes to his friend Don DeLillo and says, I want to expose... There's a falling out between Carver and Lish. And as there, the, would, have as there would have to be. And in, in later books, Carver refused to let Lish edit them as he would. And, and so his style you know, went from being extremely minimalist in the early books to more expansive and florid, to use your word, Troy, which I think is a fair word, in the later editions. And critics would kind of write about this before people had seen the original manuscripts. And they'd say, oh, well, this is because Carver started out in poverty and he was writing without success and in private you know so it makes sense that as you know he kind of got remarried and became non-alcoholic like somehow he became kind of fat and happy and so did the stories in a a way right that was the critical arc and of course that 
got totally called into question once we saw the original versions of these earlier stories. But why, you know, lots of editors, in that same article, there are many editors, including, um, you know, Gary Fiskaton, another fiction editor at Knopf, saying, this is what I do. I'm an editor. I would never take responsibility for the stories. And, you know, it's not shocking to me. Why, and, you know, we know many editors who've had intense relationships with their writers, and from Maxwell Perkins and Tom Wolfe, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot. Why does this one... Why has this one caused so much controversy, do you think? And why did you use the word sinister before, Katie? I I think this is a very extreme edit yeah. in which he's actually turning and changing the voice and that what we think of Raymond Carver for, which is this particular kind of minimalism, does appear to be in this editing process, at least in some part, the creation of the editor. And I think that is... You know, it's one thing to edit somebody into the version of, you know, this sort of best possible version of themselves, but it does take on a feeling here that he's editing Carver not just into the best possible version of himself, but into, a, you know, something else, actually, you yes. know, a different voice. And, you know, whether it's better or worse or whatever, it's a very, um, it's not just a matter of cutting here and there and sort of, you know, doing general editing. And I think why I said sinister is that it does feel like there's some sort of story itself in the struggle of these to create these mm-hmm. stories. There's some sort of um, struggle between these two men over who is the owner of this fiction. There's it a just, kind of power you struggle. Feel that, yeah. yeah. And in general, the editor doesn't get quite that much power. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my sister took a um, a creative writing class from Lish, mm-hmm. and he famously did not allow his students to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And, like, those kind of details. Like, he was obviously a very, you know, controlling as an editor in that same way. I think another... um piece of Lishiana that would as often told to me by people who took classes with him is that he would stop you as soon as he was bored, which would sometimes be after the, f- you would read your story out loud and he'd say, I'm going to stop you as soon as I get bored. Oh, and right. often exactly. people would read the first sentence and he'd be like, stop. Yeah. And that would be it. I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining about that. That's an interesting approach. We all to the read a lot workshop. of books and like, yeah. if no, no, I, no, no. The, all yeah. the first paragraph of a book has, or of a story has to do is get you to want to read the second paragraph. And if that totally. doesn't happen, then it's time to bail. I, and I will, say, and I will say, like, Lish as an editor, I think Lish is a crucial part of, and this is what's really interesting, like, there are these figures in art history, artistic history of all different genres, without who, who are not themselves the artists, but without whom our understanding of that um, the history of that particular genre would not be the same. And Lish, I think, is indubitably one of those figures. He is the editor of, you know, he helped revitalize American short fiction in the 1970s and 80s, and Carver was not the only person he edited. He found and promoted, you know, Amy Hempel, Richard Ford, all sorts of fiction writers, um, some of whom he edited far, far, far less than he did Carver. But he really championed a kind of limpid, pared-down style that is really produced and kind of helped make that possible as a style of American fiction that I think has produced some of the best American well, fiction right. in the past And I think he's brilliant. He's obviously a brilliant editor, yeah. but the real question that one wonders about is why he didn't write. Well, he did you know, write, I mean, obviously but he, he did, never... But why he didn't he write never, on the level of... Why right. couldn't he write on the well, level of these people? Where, and instead... Well, they're different skills. Yes, yeah, they are different skills. I guess they are different skills, but, it's, but it creates a strange power struggle if you are the person 
you're so actively involved in the creative process, and yet you're not a, you know, it's just Well, strange. it's really interesting, we, and you do feel with Carver, and sorry, I'll just say one quick thing, uh-huh. but you do feel with Carver that he met, like, that with some of these writers, he would edit them pretty radically, and especially, like, Hempel, he was her teacher. I think she learned a lot of her style from him. But her stories are feel like they're very much her own stories. But you do feel with Carver, somehow it was this, like, meeting of, it's not like Superman and Kryptonite, but it's some kind of, like, pairing that had to, it's like, in Carver-lish found the material that he could make a certain kind of story out of and that did help launch all of this like there was this way in which like in what Carver was providing him he saw as with few other writers how to pair it back to create this kind of intense it's not that he could have done this with everybody or Mm. I I think Mm -mm. anyway Troy I'm sorry we keep talking over you terribly that's quite all right Um, if you call me eminent again eminent eminent Troy please give us your eminent thoughts um (laughs) What Katie was talking about before in terms of, if, if I understood you right, you're saying that the changes that Alicia made uh, in the stories were sort of tantamount to an imposition and um, kind of changed the, changed the meaning fundamentally. Um, I agree that the meaning changes. I think that that's quite often for the better. And I would, the way I would put it um, is that what he's doing here is a kind of distillation of maybe his skill as an editor is recognizing what's most valuable in the story and what sort of latent possibilities are and trying to get the writer there. For, hmm. um, I mean, for, and for instance... There's distance traveled. I think, it's, I think you're right, and he is distilling, and he's distilling really brilliantly, and I agreed with you, I think The Bath is a better story. However, what's strange about it is the distance between one story and the other story, and that that how much he changed it, how much it's it's a question of how much it's altered in right. that process that but makes his he, you know that shows how much work he's doing. Here's one, here, but here's say. like a piece of, I mean, this is all. I mean, sub- you kept saying too. All of us in our conversation were like the Lish version, which is, I guess, one shorthand way to talk about it. But we're talk- calling it the Lish version because it really is different. Right. He's but obviously his Troy imprint is, okay, is pretty so intense. Uh, for one thing, I mean, uh, this is again just conjecture, but I can imagine. Uh, you know, as we've said before, we haven't uh, dwelt on it. In a small good thing, there is uh, a lot of bad dialogue. I think yeah. the, the doctors and the nurses at the hospital talk more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just that they talk more; they don't talk. They, it doesn't have the ring of of good dialogue. Speech, di- of or, speech. Yeah. doesn't so also advance the story in a right. lot of cases. Right. Yeah, and so it's possible that if you're thinking about the story and the big picture, and that stuff's got to go, and then you, then once you start evaluating what you're left with, then other changes follow from that first change. Perhaps. Can I jump in or you're not done? Well, I I agree. This is the thing. Okay, so this is what I ended up thinking. I was reading, I was comparing all the stories in what we talk about when we talk about love, which is, again, the quote-unquote Lish version, um, and then beginners. And I think sometimes the Lish version is is what you're saying, Troy. Sometimes it is a distillation, and that Lish is is doing that work that a good editor does, which is to distill and to draw out. And, and yes, there's an alteration that maybe happens, and it's a slight alteration. So, for example, beginners versus what we talk about when we talk about love, mainly the the Lish version, the what we talk about when we talk about love, I think is a distillation. There's a lot of clunky exposition through dialogue in beginners that he cuts out, for example. just it really just cleans the story up. It moves along much, nice, much more... It's not it's not minimalist, but it just moves at a better pace. But I do think in some cases, and often near the end, he does 
and this is where I think the controversial element comes in. He changes the affect of the story. Yeah, tone, so, meaning. I mean, he even changes, as we talked about it, he changed what happened. The boy I mean, doesn't die, the boy dies. The There's this sort of small, good thing, uplifting moment at the end. There's no uplifting yeah. moment at the end. I mean, so he's, that's where he's I literally, cha- I mean, which I'm not saying he's not changing it for the better. I'm just saying it's a pretty extreme act where he's cha- he's actually taking the story and doing what we, ima- we imagine people do, say, with a Hollywood script. You know, they just like now, chop off the ending, put on a new ending, but it's a very hands-on kind of editing. It's not just distilling once you change the meaning of the actual plot and meaning of the story. It's interesting to think about this question, Troy, that you've raised. Does it about, change like, the meaning or does it discover the real meaning? Well, that's a great question. Well, for example, let's think about Ezra Pound and the Wasteland, because T.S. Eliot's original version was much more satiric, and it was called He Do the Police in Different Voices. And and Pound's version did a kind of a a lish on, uh, or we could say lish is doing a pound on Carver. He, He really... Would you say in the, in this in that case that Pound found the real? I mean, I, I think we yes, all feel that and in fact Pound Elliot, found the real. Emilio Fabro, right. my Italian pronunciation. Right. For and it's now. it's interesting. I was thinking a lot about why did we not why why are we not haunted by the fact that Pound had Pound really changed the wasteland? And I think two reasons. And we are haunted more by Carver or Lish. And I think are we? I'm going to object to that. Okay, way. you are. Okay, I think we're not as haunted by the Pound. For some reason, I think we've accepted that, but maybe we haven't. But, um, but anyway, if if we let's say that we let's say let's accept that stipulation, I think first it's that we knew, you know, that now at this point we all kind of come to the wasteland knowing that there's been this edit of it. So certainly, I never read the wasteland thinking it was purely, you know, that the pound hadn't had its hands in it. But the other reason is that Carver made his name for his style, for mm-hmm. this minimalism. like And Carver, and this is where I, this goes back to what you were saying, Katie, about the sinister n- relationship between them. Carver, in early interviews and throughout his career, insisted that he, when, you know, would insist on talking about how he he found the image. He got down to the bare mm-hmm. thing. He would pare down and he would say things like, I, when I work, I pare away and I take and I take away and that's when I realized what I found because he was being celebrated as this minimalist. At the same time, he hated the term minimalist. Mm-hmm. And so there's something really complicated going on there where Carver was deeply uncomfortable with um, he clearly had a notion of authorship that didn't make him comfortable with what Lish was doing, that he felt like he was cheating in some way. I don't actually think he needs to feel that way. In this way, I'm coming back around to what you're saying, Troy. About, but I like, think he you're right. Him. But you're right about what's Carver's anxiety yeah, that you're picking up that on. That we're picking up and on because Carver very... said so much about, like, I, I did this that we now know he didn't. And then they had a very complicated relationship. Um, and I think it is what you're talking about. Um, that is why people are uncomfortable in this particular case, which is just that he was known for this one thing and famous right. for this one thing, and that the later work is less, you know, what we think about when we think about Carver stories, we think about this yeah. work. And um, and so it is because of that, that it doesn't seem like, and I guess we still hold, and maybe this is a sentimental idea that, you know, about literature, we still um, like the idea that, the, a book or a poem or a novel or a short story is the product of one brain. And I well, think what's a, a little bit ominous idea. here is that it's the product of two. two brains. And that's what seems that's, striking. That's why it's a New York Times Magazine article and right. not, you know... I don't, I do see, you feel like it's still... like Yeah, I'm interested in this because... Go ahead. I, I think that the... I'm, uh, I don't quite buy the haunted and the uh, ominous. But if one feels that way, I think that has... 
what it has to do with as much as anything is how it changes the narrative of Carver's life and his career, um, which I think is something in itself that has been kind of sentimentalized, that right. it changes the idea right. of Carver as not just exactly. a kind of author hero who forged something new, but as this kind of like hard drinking working class guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the kind of writer who's always yeah. kind of a, a subject to mm, not, well, sentimentalization possibly, uh, but beyond that, a kind of uh, sort of fame and infamy that uh, people get hung up on. Yeah, the my romanticization part, of that figure. Yeah, yeah. Right, yes, Absolutely. that is the word yeah. I was groping towards. Yeah. I, and so I don't find it haunting and ominous. I think that you know, we all went to college, and we, we decided, I thought we were all on board then that this death of the author thing had happened. <laughs> and, you know, and that, it I doesn't matter. Yale where they it didn't accept that yet. There was no critical <laughs> theory at Yale? They, were, they exiled critical theory to the humanities department, man. No, we did not accept the death of the author. Sorry. Well, I didn't accept well, the death of the author. I still but but anyway, let's author. say we did. Uh-huh. Right, we yeah. did. Well, okay. at, at Princeton, we did. In fact, my, my copy of uh, where I'm calling from was burgled from the English department. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I, I think that what really matters is the story itself and not right. who made it or the circumstances of its production. Well, right, that may be true. Everything okay. else is just No, and, and that that's may be true, but we are in the realm of gossip here and even talking about that. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. It, what matters is the story, but but we're talking about a whole phenomenon and why this is a New York Times magazine story and not, you know, a footnote in a biography is that people are still interested and it well, is and about there's a myth. Now, yeah, and there's and there's a myth and and why these yeah, why these two versions are in this modern library edition which just begs the question right. is that we are talking about the myth and the legend and the biography of the author and I do, you know, I mean, you know, we're not in the world of new criticism here. I mean, it it is still relevant to talk about you know maybe it's not as relevant as which story is better i mean we've all, we've all kind of weighed in on that but it's still well, an issue it's still a it's still a complicated psychological dance between these two men that's sort of interesting well i think it's also his- interesting in as we were just saying and as you were just saying troy in the history of kind of american literature because of the way that carver because we do with certain writers in particular kind of seize on the biography as part of our understanding of the work and in carver's case i think we did and carver himself lay claim in these interviews to me it's the it's part of it is the extra textual carver what carver mm-hmm. was saying carver's own mm-hmm. anxiety about this it's also makes the masculinity it, but I agree with you, of it. it is ultimately the text and i mean that's the that's the note that the dt max article ends on is a pound, actually pound saying something like or maybe it was Eliot, I can't remember who, and it actually doesn't matter, saying great poems need to be written, it doesn't matter how they're created. And that's sort of the idea. And Carver, Max is quoting Carver saying that in an interview, responding to a student, which is really interesting, and I think is probably ultimately where Carver... It's not ultimately where he ended up, because we know he ended up kind of seizing the control back from Lish, but at least along the way there were moments where he thought, that's right, like Lish is creating is helping distill or create or I don't know what word what verb we want to use there a version of these stories that is really excellent yeah. Well, the other thing is, I think it, it's this particular kind of prose that lends itself to this speculation. This sort of, I mean, if you took something like Hemingway, it's very masculine, hmm. pared down mm-hmm. type of writing that we can trace back to that mm-hmm. Hemingway idea and. 
it appears to be part of this kind of dirty realism is its naturalness. Mm -hmm. It's sort of meant to appear in a way like no-nonsense, natural, from-the-heart type writing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it is so edited just adds something to that idea. You know, the truth is, I don't really have a problem. I mean, what you were saying about the death of the author, I, I don't... I think it's sinister for Carver's life and not so sinister for the work. I guess that's how I would put it. Like, it was clearly troubling for Carver as a person. I don't really care about it in terms of the work, because I actually think a lot of Delish versions are much, much better, and I'm so glad that they exist, because those are the versions I first read, and those are the the versions where the language has a kind of density and specific gravity that makes me feel a certain way that I like to feel when I'm reading them. But... um, you know, it's just for me. What's interesting about it is it drives home what you're getting at, which is what you're both getting at, which is how much trouble we have with collaboration, with the idea that something can't exist. Because I don't, I don't think it's pure distillation. I don't think it's just like a little mm-hmm. trims that kind of bring the story. Well, sort it of is shine collaboration. The story. It it's is collaboration. collaboration. And you know, that didn't used to bother our people about art. I mean, that's a very modern. You know, this our anxiety about this really does come from the kind of um, from romanticism and the celebration of the author as the singular force, the authentic voice behind it and the singularity of the individual. And that's what's so interesting and fabulous about, I think, the Lish, the Lish versions is that they're, it's a reminder that that's not necessarily the, the, the only model for creating writing or any kind of art. Now that I've now that I've had my little <laughs> moral say on that, but what um, did you guys? Are there f- f- stories that you love in either version that um, of what? Let's see, either the Lish version, what we talk about when we talk about love or beginners. Are there other stories we would, we should recommend to our readers? I love the story about the hotel, and I'm now forgetting the name. All the titles of these stories are sort of in, weirdly interchangeable, yes. which is why they're hard to remember. But the story um, where he's having an affair, and they're managers of a of a hotel and hard drinkers. I'm going to find it in a second. It's. I mean, I, I think actually both versions are very good. But the and it's and it's an example of one that's just edited with a slightly lighter touch. Mm-hmm. Um, is an excellent story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about the badness of it. While, while you're looking for that, um, you know, the bath is a much, not a much better title. It's a somewhat better title than a small good thing, I think. Mm. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these titles aren't very mm-hmm. good. No, the, the um, Lish titles are better, and he based them on um, a kind of the kind of tone that a James Purdy achieved in some of his titles. I think that's sort of where he's pulling that from. Yeah. Um, I have to say, Lish is just a brilliant editor of dialogue and exposition. Like, that is where Carver gets kind of lo- what you were saying, Troy, where Carver just gets lost. I mean, when you go through and compare them over and over, that's what you see is Carver getting a little bit lost in the wooliness of his own need to say more than needs to be said. Do you have a favorite, Troy? Um, I'm liking um, Neighbors, which is about mm-hmm. uh, some cat sitting mm-hmm. uh, gone oh, wrong. I like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good and spooky, and it's this couple inhabiting this other space. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always a fan of the classic, what we talk about when we talk about love. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the stories I first read of Carver's, and I remember just being traumatized, you know, like haunted by it. Just mm. like, oh, this is so depressing. You know, and it's like 
you read it in college when you're having your own first relationships and you're just like, this is where we're headed to like a gin soaked uh-huh. bath of anime and sadness. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's so great. <laughs> but, um, yeah. They're all worth reading. They're all and worth they are, reading. I mean, yeah. and I do, I mean, I do think that the, even in spite of my, I seem to be coming out in defense of the other ones, but I do think they're, they're all pretty much better. The Lish I really thought the Lish versions yeah. were. Yeah. Um, but he knows how to line edit that man, and he does reshape them and, and into a kind of radical compression of. It's interesting. I have to think more about whether I think that's a distillation of what's there, whether he finds the story that's there, or. I think your version, them. I think you're calling it a collaboration is more yeah. correct. It just feels like if you're doing that much editing, it feels collaborative. Well, thank you both for collaborating with me and creating this podcast today. Anytime. Uh, we will next be reading Nabokov's The Nabokov. Oh, I'm sorry. Really? I'm a pedant about this. He really? made, no, he made up a, a poem for his students at Cornell uh, uh, to teach them how to pronounce Nabokov. his name. I guess uh, it sounds uh, more Russian. The, the querulous squawk of the heron at night prompts Nabokov to write. Oh, there we go. Okay. And I blame Sting for uh, for spreading the, <laughs> the mispronunciation. But I just ahead. like long vowels. Um, okay, Nabokov's The Original of Laura. That will be our next audiobook club. So we hope you'll join us for that. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke, and I want to thank Katie and Troy for joining me today. Bye. Bye.